Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 31st, 2019 little bit more of a challenging episode today. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we uh, demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. And uh, we teach you how to engage in sound biblical exegesis, good biblical discernment, and uh, things of that nature, so that you are not deceived by, well, what these people are saying. You get the idea. All right, so uh, from time to time, in fact, I feel like I need to do this more often than not, is uh, we we do episodes where things are not nearly as obvious as far as what's wrong with the false teaching. So from time to time we do episodes where the discernment meter is going to be pegged, and uh, and this is a good thing. This is a good thing. It needs to be pegged in this sense, and uh, so that uh, you can practice your discernment skills on, on on things that are more complicated to unravel than just merely applying our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context. Yeah, the, oftentimes, in fact, the vast majority of uh, a Bible twist can be fixed with just applying those three rules. And then there are twists that require you to have 
uh, a more in-depth understanding of Scripture and particular biblical categories. And one of the ones we love to go to on a regular basis as far as uh, a, a biblical category that uh, a lot of people, they really mess it up is uh, is the ca- are the categories of the proper distinction between God's law and the gospel, the law and the gospel. And as a result of that, oftentimes, you know, well-meaning pastors who might even say, well, I believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. I'm not a Roman Catholic. Why would you critique me along these lines? Well, because you confuse the categories of law and gospel, and as a result of that, you... uh, deceive people and and really kind of mess things up in in their in their hearts and their minds. So case in point, we're going to look at three things today. Uh we're going to start with uh, David Hughes. David Hughes of Church by the Glades. And uh, David Hughes is um in his genius sermon series. Uh and the name of the sermon that we'll be previewing is titled Only as Good as the Guarantee. Only as Good as the Guarantee. And he's going to be talking about what he calls the iconic life of Abraham, the iconic life of Abraham. And he, and, and so this particular twist uh, will require um, some careful attention to uh, the translations that are being used. Um, if you don't know Greek, I'll teach you a method where you can start to kind of you know, figure out where where the problem may be because every English translation, no matter how good they are, uh, they all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. And so, uh, David Hughes is not only going to ba- not make a proper distinction between the law and the gospel, and talking about Abraham, the man of faith, um, but he's going to use the uh, the current NIV translation. And in one of the verses that he is going to highlight the word from this from the current NIV translation. It's not a good translation of the Greek, and we'll we'll try to teach you along the way how you can you know spot that. Uh, after that, we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, we're going to head down to Saddleback Church, and we're going to listen to Rick Warren teaching on the five on you know, on on you know your five purposes. You know, and oh man, he is he's going to be. Like adding things to scripture, no joke. You just flat out like stick stuff in there that that ain't there. And he will, of course, also be not making a proper distinction between law and gospel. Uh, when we're done with that segment, we'll take a break and then sermon uh, sermon review in hour number two. We're heading down to Potential Church. Yeah, they're just a church in potential. They're not. They're no longer a church. Um, and check in to see if they've graduated yet. Troy Gramling. Uh, from his uh, sermon titled Holy Speech, Holy Speech, and uh, we'll try to unravel all of that. And and the idea here is that each of these different segments then uh, will in some way, and I, I don't normally talk about my themes this openly, uh, you know, kind of confuse the proper distinction between the law and the gospel, uh, but they will also be engaging in biblical twists that require more than just um, you know, you know, knowing context, context, context. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of uh, ground that we need to cover, and uh, and since we're going to start off with, um, well, uh, a David Hughes update, uh, let's go ahead and play this music for David Hughes. It really doesn't matter what, what I, I do, what, what I, I do, as long as I do it with a flair. 
What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. Yeah, that doesn't matter what I say or what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. So heading over to Church by the Glades as we listen to David Hughes and his genius sermon series talking about the iconic life of Abraham. Here we go. We start, I think, what's going to be a remarkable journey through the narrative of a man named Abraham. Abraham lived such an iconic life, made such brilliant and blessable decisions. Iconic life and blessable decisions. What does that mean? You know, I think about Abraham. If you know the story of Abraham, I mean, on two occasions, this guy totally pretended like he wasn't married to his wife so that he wouldn't get killed. And and it, like in one instance, it almost got her, you know, <clears throat> slept with. You know, it's, yeah, iconic, blessable decision guy. R- right, yeah. <laughs> we continue. That his legacy is impossible to fully understand or calculate. He's honored by Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike. Right. Uh, man, billions of people, not millions, billions of people venerate his name. What he did in his generation was iconic. Oh, my God. I can't. Iconic, again. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Wait for this multiple-week study. I hope you make a genius decision to be here every week. And, and why are we going to do this, this, the whole hug thing? Here's why. You turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bible, if you don't have your Bible, I'll put the verses on the screen at every campus. Genesis chapter 12. In fact, let's shout that loudly together. Genesis chapter... Whoa. Genesis chapter 12. And while you're in Genesis 12, that's first book of your Old Testament. In the New Testament, Hebrews 11, it says this about Abraham and why he was blessed. <laughs> and why he was blessed. Okay, now let's just do a little pre-work. We'll do a little pre-work, shall we? Uh, we're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 11 since he told us this is where we're going And we'll look at it in the ESV, and a little bit of a note, I know for a fact that the verse that will appear on the screen shortly is from the new NIV, not the 1984 NIV, but the new version of the NIV whenever that came out. So that will come into play here. Now, let me make my Greek just a little bit bigger. Now, here's what it says, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, it is the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, faith, by the way, uh, pistis, is trust. You know, it's, I have faith in you that you will do such and such a thing. You know, that you'll brush your teeth this morning. You know, I have, you know, hopefully that's not a misplaced faith. But uh, you know, faith is trust in a in somebody. So faith always has an object to which it's looking to. You just you can't have faith in faith. That's uh, called fideism, and that's really kind of what goes on in the uh, word of faith heresy. But faith is trust in God uh, for the promises that He has given to us. Now, that being the case, we've got to be very careful. We pay attention to the promises that we truly do have. 
Uh, we do not have a promise of prosperity. Uh, we do not have a promise of perfect health and wealth and influence and affluence and a, per, a dream destiny thingy and all this kind of... No, we don't have those kinds of promises. What we do have uh, through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is the promise of the forgiveness of sins, uh, a reconciled relationship with God, adoption into the family of God so that we can call God Father. We are his children. Uh, we have been made holy by Christ. It's salvation, eternal life uh, as a free gift. These are the things that we are promised. So you know, keep that in mind. So if we're, if we're going to trust God, we're trusting God for particular things. So by faith, then, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So you'll note then that this text tells us why uh, Abel was commended, whereas Cain was not. It, Cain was not rejected because he gave God a, a salad offering. Uh, you learn in the uh, Torah that uh, you know you can bring a grain offering to God. That's perfectly acceptable. The issue was Cain had no faith. Abel did. That's the thing that distinguished uh, you know Cain from Abel is that Cain was faithless. He didn't trust God. Abel did. Uh, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was uh, not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And this is kind of an important governing verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. So you, you think of the idea of salvation by grace through faith alone and, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Yeah, that's right. There is no salvation apart from faith. So by faith, Noah then being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the uh, world and became the heir of, the, of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham. Now we're to the Abraham portion. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. So, you know, it, it's not just that Abraham obeyed, by faith Abraham obeyed. He believed, he trusted. Romans 4, uh, quoting Genesis 15, says that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abra by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, and by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city who, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Talking about the uh, New Jerusalem you know, that's uh, revealed in the end of the book, in the book of Revelation. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. She considered him faithful who had promised... Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not, not having received the things promised, right? Yeah, that's right. They didn't receive them. So, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who thus, who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, 
that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And now here comes the portion that uh, David Hughes will be quoting. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, and so you know, he did this by faith. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received, anadechomai, anadechomai is the uh, the Greek word, and you know, it's, you can accept or receive, that's kind of the concept. So uh, the one who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which he, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By the way, this tells us that uh, that story of of Abraham sacrificing, or going to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, it's a type and shadow. It's a type and shadow of of Christ and his crucifixion and and his sacrifice. So by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So you're going to, over again, by faith, by trusting God, by trust, by trust, by faith. Faith and trust are synonymous concepts here. That's how this happened. And now, Let's take a look at what David Hughes does here, because like I said, on the discernment scale, this one's a little out there, but uh, let's continue. So we're going to study the power of the promises of God, the promises of God. Your Bible is full of God self-obliging himself to promise things to you, and God always keeps his promises. But look at Abraham's attitude and came to God's promises. Verse 17, Hebrews 11, it's on the screen at every campus. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac... As a sacrifice, get ready. He, Abraham, he who had embraced the promises. Mm. Yeah, I, I got to take issue with the uh, brand new NIV here. I, I really do. Now, if you don't know Greek, if you don't know Greek, let me show you a way in which you can begin to, you know, kind of figure things out. So if you're a pastor uh, and your job is to, you know, preach sermons and stuff like that, and you haven't been to seminary and you've never taken a Greek class. I would say you are you are at a you know at a disadvantage. But let me show you how to overcome that disadvantage. So we're going to be at uh, BibleGateway.com, BibleGateway.com, and what we're going to do is we're going to look up Hebrews eleven seventeen, and uh, this is the New International Version. Let's make this just a little bit bigger. Wow, that's small. <laughs> Where's the make it bigger button? Anyway, uh, maybe if I try this, let's see if that works. Yeah, that'll, that kind of works. Okay, so by faith, Abraham, uh, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had, and here it says embraced. And now this is the new NIV. Now let me show you uh, the older NIV, the NIV 84, uh, which was uh, you know, like my, my first Bible after, um, after the King James uh, and uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen in the 84 says this, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had received on a dechomai the promises. So you're going to note that the original NIV says received. The, um, the current NIV says embraced. Now that's not a good translation of on a it's, It really isn't. It, it makes me go, who came up with that idea? Okay, so you're going to note that David Hughes is making a lot of hay on this. Now, how then would you go about, you know, figuring this out? 
So what you do then in a situation like this, in, uh, you would go to – so you, you look at it in the current NIV. Let's go ahead and look at the New King James Version, the New King James Version, and he who had received the, the promises. So you notice it says received in the King James. The idea here is compare notable good English translations – and see if, uh, see if play that game from Sesame Street. You know, one of these things is not like the other. Here's the original King James. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received. There it is again, received. So the King James says received. The, uh, the new King James says received. Uh, the ESV, which we've already noted, says received. Uh, you know, so the idea here is by comparing different good translations, and I mean, don't yeah, you know, you're not d- just avoid the tra- uh, the the passion translation. That's not a translation. Avoid the voice, the message, the Living Bible. These are all paraphrases at best and heretical at worst in some cases. But you know, you know, so like, check the NIV, check the ESV, check the New King James, check the original King James. Um, and then the New American Standard, uh, new, uh, so the New American Standard, let me find that. Where is that? Okay, New American Standard, here we go. The NASB, this is a very faithful translation to the Greek. Not so easy to read in English, but that, that serves as a really good tool. Um, so again, uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen. by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and when he who had received so you'll note that the current niv is out of alignment you know it's it's got the word embraced and if you know greek you're sitting there going why did he put the word embrace there for on a that doesn't make any sense but in your preparation for your sermons you need to be able to make these distinctions so if you don't know greek then you check multiple faithful english translations and note where there are variants, and then do your research to find out why that's the case. So, you know, now, now, all that's a little practical help here, but uh, coming back then to David Hughes, I'm going to back this up just a smidge, because he he's going to make a lot of hay about the word embrace, and that's not a good translation. Isaac, as a sacrifice, here ready. He, Abraham, he who had embraced the promises. See, a lot of people wonder why I don't see the power of God in my life. I come. To- yeah, again, um, the better translations say received. Received. You know, he who had received on a decomai. And if we take a look in the BDAG, I need to make that a little bit bigger. Um, to experience something by being accepting, accept, or to receive, to extend hospitality, to receive, to welcome. Yeah, see, embraced is not even really in the semantic domain of anadekomai. So we, we got a problem here and because his main point is spurious and not really faithful to what the Greek says or even how the best English translations work with anadekomai. Church some, I pray some. I actually read my Bible occasionally. Abraham was not blessed because he was acquainted with the Bible. He was aware of the promises. He sometimes had spiritualism. No, no, he, he didn't fist bump the promises of God. He trusted them. He trusted God. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, a little bit of a note here. Now, this is where we probably should do a little bit of work 
on the proper distinction between law and gospel, and even take a quick look at what is said about Abraham in uh, Romans chapter 4. So in, in properly understanding the law and the gospel, we have to recognize this kind of weird fact, is that we have two words from God that seem to be contradictory. So the law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, believe and you will live. And so which is it? Well, You have to understand their purposes. So both of them are words from God, but they each have a different purpose for which God sent them out. Uh, The purpose of the law is to condemn us. Uh, If you could keep God's law perfectly from the moment you're conceived till the, the moment you draw your last breath, well, then you could be saved by the law, but you've got a problem, and that is is that you're born uh, dead in trespasses and sins. See Ephesians 2. So then what's the purpose of the law? We'll see that here in Romans 3, and then note how the gospel comes in and says something very different. Uh, you know, and in order to be prepared for the gospel, you have to hear the law. So what then? Are we Jews any better off, Paul asks? Well, not at all, for we've all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good. That's all of us, by the way. No one does good, not even one. Yeah, that's all of us. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So you'll note then, the law then causes us to be quiet. Shuts your mouth. You're not not innocent. You're not going to be justified by the law. The law accuses you and finds you guilty, and rightly so. So zip it is what what the the purpose of the law is, so that you can be held accountable uh, uh, to God And then verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Uh, Dikaiao means to be declared righteous. No human being will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's its primary purpose. It's not its only purpose, but it's its, it's its primary purpose to show you and give you knowledge of your sin and how you have fallen short. Now, another purpose of God's law is to show you and to, you know, clearly I, you know, help you understand what are good works, you know, in uh, what are good works that are pleasing in God's sight. But that's a use that's only for Christians, but the primary use then of the law is to cause you to be quiet and to hold you accountable to God and to give you a knowledge of your sin, which is necessary if you're going to understand the gospel. And now here comes the gospel portion of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God. This is God's righteousness, Christ's, if you would. It has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. This is the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as what? As a gift. Salvation is a gift. It's received and believed and apprehended and held onto by faith. 
So um, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Here you can uh, take uh, Hilasterion and you can say this is an atoning sacrifice uh, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former things. So uh, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? If you're saved by grace through faith and it's totally a gift of God, is there any room for boasting? No. (laughs) I got this really great gift. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the gift giver and his grace and his mercy, right? Uh, By what kind of law? By a law of works. Boasting is excluded, right? Uh, By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified. Again, dikaiao, declared righteous before God by faith apart from works of the law. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians don't do good works. That's a false understanding. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't do good works. You're not saved by them, though. Okay, so we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Well, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. And now here comes the teaching on Abraham. So what shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. Huh? There's that faith. And it's fascinating here. Uh, the Greek word, the Greek verb for believe is pistuo, which, you know, its noun form is pistis. So when we were in the book of Hebrews, by faith, by pistis, by faith, Abraham did this. And then we hear Abraham believed the verb pistuo. He believed, he pistuoed God, and this was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you'll note salvation. It's saying, I refuse to work for my salvation. I totally believe that it's what scripture says, that it's a gift to be received by grace through faith. I believe that and I refuse to work for it. Right. That person's faith is counted as righteousness. That's what it says there. And it's in the context of of sorting out and exemplifying Abraham as the man of faith. So now coming back to David Hughes, I get I told you on the discernment scale, this is kind of out there. You have to get some you got to get a few biblical categories in place. So the law cannot save you. It condemns you and it shows you what a good work is. The gospel comes and tells you what Christ has done for you, calls you to repent and to believe, and that faith and trust and confidence in God that he has forgiven you for the sake of Christ, that's counted as righteousness, righteousness that saves. So let's uh, back this up just a little bit and listen again. Because he was acquainted with the Bible. He was aware of the promises. He sometimes had spiritualists. No, no, he, he didn't fist bump the promises of God. He embraced 
the promises of God. When it comes to the promises of God, Joe, you come in for a long, awkward hug. And that's when God blesses. I'm going to show you how to hug the promises of God, to dig deep into God's word, to press into God's promises. I want God to release his power for you. What am I tripping on there? I got something tripping on you at the start of 2019. Amen? Let's study the promises of God. going to be so much fun. The series is entitled Genius. Let me define the term genius for the sake of our multi-week conversation. When I refer to Jesus, I'm not referring to mere intelligence. If you have a high IQ, that's awesome. I think it's more than that. Now, when you think of a genius in history, you think of those famed geniuses like uh, Sir Isaac Newton, English physicist. Uh, You think, and by the way, Heather with the wig, that was awesome, right? You think of Sir Isaac Newton. You think of a famed Greek philosopher, maybe Aristotle or Plato or Socrates. You think about Italian painter, inventor Leonardo da Vinci, one of the greatest geniuses of all time. Uh, You might be a music fan. Wolfgang Arbadeus Mozart was a genius composer for sure. Uh, I'd be remiss here in this study not to mention Michael Ann. Yeah, it just bums me out that David Hughes doesn't spend as much time working on sound exegesis as he does set design there at Church by the Glades. So Michael Angel- hey, we got Michael up there. What's up, Michael? Michelangelo's up there. He's, he's, he's working on the Sistine Chapel right now. Beautiful, man. I love, I love that. Let's see. Uh, how about uh, more contemporary geniuses? Albert Einstein, Austrian-American uh, physicist. Uh, Stephen Hawking passed away last year. Genius mind, incredible intellect. Uh, Rick Rosner, Rick Rosner, famed genius. Like, wait a minute. I don't, who's that last one? Rick Rosner. No, actually, Rick Rosner has scored the highest ever on 20 different IQ tests. But you didn't know his name, did you? What's he do for a living? Is he a scientist, a musician, a painter? He's worked as a stripper. <laughs> security guard, nothing wrong with well, stripper, yes, wrong with that. But security guard, nothing wrong with that. Uh, he's a really smart guy. So as I define for the sake, no disrespect of Rick is in church. You're really smart. But for the sake of this conversation, genius, I want the idea to be applied intelligence. Intelligence with a work ethic. Intelligence with focus, sweat, that results in accomplishment, advancement, and progress. Now, you take that idea, you know, hardworking intelligence that results in advancement and progress, and you sanctify that idea, you get the biblical idea of wisdom. Wisdom, and that's a huge concept in the Bible. When I say three, all campuses, please shout the word wisdom. Ready? One, two, three. Come on, louder. One, two. Yeah, a little bit of a note. Proverbs. Book of Proverbs. It's all about the wisdom of God. And Proverbs is full of law, not gospel, law. It's, a, it's, the, applied, it's, the, it's the applied law of God in, in your own life. And so the book of Proverbs, yeah, the, one of the wisdom books, it's law, not gospel. Three. And God wants you in 2019 to walk in his wisdom. Now, there's somebody going, hey, not just 2019, God would like me to bear fruit in keeping with repentance by obeying his commands every day, regardless of the year. That sounds great, but it doesn't save me. But David, truth be told, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I, I, I didn't make great grades. I, I, I've taken IQ tests. I, I didn't score very high, so I guess I'm out for this conversation. Well, here's the crazy thing. 
I don't think this biblical idea of wisdom has a lot to do with our intelligence. I don't think you have to have superlative intelligence to walk in God's wisdom. See, God's wisdom is not about my smarts. It's, it's about His smarts. It's about the cosmic genius who made the cosmos letting you borrow His brain. And God is so generous. God, if you don't know God, you're here kind of just trying to figure out who God is. Like, what's this, is this God mean? Is he just interested? Is, is he stingy? No, he's... So, so why do I feel like he's trying to, like, repackage and sell God's law to us? You know, oh, you're just borrowing God's brain, and he's such a genius, and he wants you to be like, you know, Michelangelo and, you know, geniuses like that. And Albert Einstein and stuff. Yeah, that's not really what's going on in the the law, but okay. So open-handed. This God is so gracious. He's so generous. He wants you to have all the best things in life, including wisdom. And I love this promise. We're going to study the promises of God. God wants me to have the best things in life. In this life? Not in the new, the one to come? God self-obliges himself. So I love this promise. This is the New Testament. You stay in Genesis chapter 12. You stay in chapter 12. I'll promise someone will get there. But in James chapter 1, verse 5, on the screen, right now at every campus, read the one little bitty highlighted word. But if, but if any, any man, woman, boy, girl, smart person, not smart person, educated, but if any of you lacks wisdom, look at this promise. Let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. I mean, I, okay. Overall, a very intelligent church. I got lots of smart people here. Maybe not all the religious background, but smart people, even spiritually discerning people. But it's not about your smarts. God has promised to give you his wisdom. Doesn't yeah. Doesn't matter what you scored on your SAT, don't matter if you can spell SAT. <laughs> See, here's the big idea. Again, it just feels like a sales pitch. God is offering himself as your personal life consultant. No. <laughs> no. God is not a life coach, God is not a life consultant. God is God. Do oh. <laughs> The word deplorable seems to come to mind here. Through Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit, He will loan you His genius. Listen, and when you make wise decisions, wise decisions are blessable. Stay with me. Another text of scripture, uh, Galatians chapter three, and this is uh, this this entire epistle, this this book of the Bible, Galatians, is written against the Judaizing heresy, which taught salvation by works plus grace, uh, and so Paul just obliterates the, uh, the the people who are purveyors of the Galatian heresy and say the ones who said, oh, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. Uh, Paul just basically says that's a different gospel and you're anathema. He says you're damned. But watch what he says then to the churches in Galatia. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
So let me ask you uh, only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? By the way, the answer is by hearing with faith. Let me kind of rephrase it using David Hughes's weird manipulation of the concepts here. Did you receive the Spirit by making genius decisions and letting God be your life coach? No. <laughs> are you so foolish, Paul, that says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the uh, flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the second one. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you'll note, two passages, Romans 4 and Galatians 3, are holding Abraham up as not a guy who made uh, decisions that could be blessable, but a man who was counted righteous by grace through faith. So David Hughes is uh, not making a proper distinction between the law and the gospel. Now, God will bless individual wise decisions, unique wise decisions. But if you start making a series of wise decisions, when you get in the holy habit of having wise decisions, oh my gosh, your life takes on a sense of divine momentum. Your life becomes blessable. See, God, this is all works. Now, there, obedience to God's law is done because we are Christians. Not in order to make our lives blessable, because they are already blessed in Christ. Ugh. God blessing. Blessing is a big idea. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But God loves to bless wise decisions. So wisdom is huge. Say the word wisdom. One, two, three. Wisdom. I think you get the point. And uh, this is just really a mess. Um, not because he doesn't. How do I put this? He does rightly understand that obedience is something that God does bless. And God does reward. But the problem here is, is that he's confusing the law and the gospel and its functions and its purposes, and he hasn't front-loaded everything properly the way you should with faith being the, you know, the operative thing. And then we, because we are forgiven, because we have faith in the promises of the forgiveness of sins, we bear fruit in keeping with repentance by growing in our sanctification, by mortifying our sinful flesh, taking off the old self in its foolish and unwise decisions, putting on the new. And that new is, uh, is made you know, to look like Christ, and the decisions it makes looks a lot like Proverbs. You, you see what I'm saying? There's, there's a big difference here. And unfortunately, there's just too much going on uh, in evangelicalism where people make it appear that uh, you know that we're we're blessed via works righteousness, or we're saved via works works righteousness, and they confuse the law and the gospel and their purposes. Now, hopefully, this wasn't like you're sitting there going, "Man, this my my brain hurts after this." I get it, I get it. You know, I told you that this one would be a little bit more difficult, but uh, you you get the idea. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to be checking in with Rick Warren and apparently the five purposes for your life. It includes like adding a whole lot of stuff to the Bible that ain't there. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. 
This might feel like theological waterboarding, but you'll get used to it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. Gentlemen, we have two basic suggestions for the design of this megachurch, and I thought it best that the architects themselves came in to explain the advantages of both designs. That must be the first architect now. Ah, yes, this is Mr. Wapcat of Finkel, Dewey, and Grime. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, yes, the design I've devised for the new worship center has all the aesthetic beauty of the Crystal Cathedral with all the advantages of modern technology. Um, the congregants step through these wide double doors here are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort past the youth worship basement, the adult worship rock and roll arena, the monster truck smash and into the Sarlacc pit. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproofed. The congregants slide down these chutes here into the open mouth. Excuse me. Hmm? Did you say Sarlacc Pit? Um, Sarlacc Pit, yes. Uh, are, are you proposing to digest our congregants over a thousand years? Does that not fit in with your plans? No, it does not. We wanted a simple megachurch, not a death trap. Ah, I see. I hadn't correctly divined your attitude towards the congregants. Uh-huh. You see, I mainly design occultist cathedrals. Yes, pity. Mind you, this is a real butte, not your average satanic mosque with people's beating hearts being ripped out of their chest or burning sulfur pits and convincing passers-by with burnt eyebrows. I mean... My life has been building up to this. Yes, and well done. But we did want a mega church and not a temple of doom. Well, may I ask you to reconsider? I mean, you've no idea how modern and relevant this place can be. Think, think of the tourist trip. No, no, it's not going to work for us. By the way, um, why the Sarlacc pit? Well, it's a pretty standard feature in all of my projects. You see, if you're going to preach heresy, you might as well not even bother waiting. Just send them to the afterlife quickly, is what I've always said. You mean heaven? <laughs> You are so funny. Thank you. You may leave now. Hypocritical puss buckets. My apologies, gentlemen. The next architect is Miss Parsons of Cromwell and Hague. Good afternoon, gentlemen. As you may notice from my scale model, the design takes us back to our ancestral Christian roots. Observe the white bell tower, the baptismal font, the organ at the back of the Stop. church, and... 
I beg your pardon. You've completely missed the whole point of the mega church. Uh, you made something irrelevant. How is the seeker-driven church going to attract prospective customers? I, I mean, uh, congregants. Isn't church about worshiping Jesus Christ and hearing and learning his word? Jesus has got nothing to do with this. We need tithers, not decrepit old people clinging to their crack leather Bibles and going on and on about how the music's too loud and how the preacher doesn't read enough scripture, complaining about the coffee shop in the main foyer and how they charge too much for a double chocolate spring hazelnut latte. But they still pay the fourteen ninety nine for the latte because the water in the drinking fountain tastes like arsenic. <clears throat> That's enough, Miss Parsons. The answer is no. Very well, gentlemen. Have a good day. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.copy and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Alright, we're back. Uh, warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that um, confusing law and gospel is a very dangerous thing. Because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. 
Uh, when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Made at 24 95 a month from there master gunner at 49.95 a month and then quartermaster at 99.95 a month joining our crew is a great way to support us of course if you'd like to make a one-time contribution click on the donate button if you'd like to become a patron on patreon click on the become a patron button if you'd like to support us the traditional way you can do so by making your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, time for a Rick Warren update. Let's do this. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait, got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh... Time for a Rick Warren update. So what we're going to do, heading over to Saddleback, and uh, Rick Warren is preaching on the, the five purposes for your life, and uh, <laughs> confusing law and gospel, like, really badly, adding things to the biblical text that are not there, and uh, it's just a complete and utter mess, uh, which is kind of pretty much par for Rick Warren's course. So let's get to it. Here's Rick Warren and the five purposes of your life. Hello, Saddleback. I want to say hi to all 20 of our campuses, including those of you who are joining us online. If you'll take out your message notes, today we're continuing in our series on the foundations of a life well lived. There are three... You just have to ask the question, is Christianity all about a life well lived? You think of like the Christian martyrs, people who lost their lives for confessing Jesus Christ. And I, those people just don't rise to the top of my list of people who, you know, are exemplify a life well lived, you know, maybe a life well suffered, you know, things like that. But yeah, already we got a problem because is that really what Christian sanctification is all about? Hmm. Let's continue parts to laying a solid foundation for your life. First, you have to know who God made you to be. That's your identity. And if you're confused about your identity, uh, you're going to waste your life. Because what matters... Oh no! What if God intended me to be an astrophysicist? I've been wasting all of my time here as a theologian and a pastor. It's not what other people say about you, but what matters is what God says about you. And because he always knows and tells the truth, you want to listen to what he has to say about you. And we've already looked at that. Now, the second part of the foundation is you got to know what God wants you to do. That's your purpose. First, you need to know your identity, and then you need to know your purpose. What on earth am I here for? Yeah, by the way, I'm just going to point this out, is that God did not create people with a singular purpose. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is going to be my text to kind of prove this. Um, and so he, here's what it says. I'll read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 so you can see this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here we go. For we are his. We are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for uh, agathois, hois, um, ergois agathois. There we go. Ergois agathois. For good works, plural. You're not created in Christ for a purpose. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And good works can be done uh, in all of your different vocations. They can be done by children. They can be done by adults, young adults, by parents, by grandparents, and even people who are bedridden. Uh, you can do good works. You say, well, what's a good work? Scripture defines what a good work is. It's according to our different vocations as husband, wife, son, daughter, father, mother, employer, employee, in in these relationships. And then we're all members of what's called the kingdom of priests, which means we do our good work by praying for others as well and things like this. So we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, plural, not a singular purpose. What Rick Warren is teaching here is not uh, is not true. You've got to know who you are and you've got to know what you were created to do. Then the third part of a life well lived is you've got to know when to do it. And that's the right timing. Who you are, what you're supposed to do with your life, and when you're supposed to do it. Now when all three of these line up in your life, your identity and your purpose and your timing, you have the ingredients for a successful life. Which scripture text says this? I don't know any biblical passage that teaches this. Not one. And Ephesians 2.10 says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Plural. Now today, I want you to see God's five purposes for the rest of your life. But to set this up, I first want to ask you a question. Who would you guess was the greatest king uh, in the Bible? I don't know if you've been reading the Bible for a long time or just a little time, but you might guess King David, because he's certainly the most famous king. He wrote Psalm 23 and so many other great psalms. You might guess Solomon, who was the wisest king. The Bible tells us he was the wisest and wealthiest king. You might guess Saul, who was the first king of Israel. But God says the greatest king of all in the Bible was a little-known king named Hezekiah. And the Bible tells us all of Hezekiah, contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, about him in 2 Kings chapter 18. Let me read this to you. Chapter 18 of 2 Kings, verses 2 to 7. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned Jerusalem 29 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Hezekiah trusted the Lord. Mm-hmm. And there was never another king like him in the land of Judah, either before him or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands of the Lord. Now, Hezekiah is going to be like one of the guys that made their way into Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed. And so you'll note that what we saw Rick Warren uh, read out from 2 Kings 18 is that Hezekiah trusted. See, he by faith, 
he remained faithful to the Lord and he carefully obeyed. Uh-huh. That he had been given by Moses. So the Lord was with him. And Hezekiah, watch this, was successful in everything he did. Now, we'll just do a little fact-checking on this one because I suspect something's off here. So 2 Kings 18 and um, all right. So Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. According to all that David, his father had done, he removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nuhashtan. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's kind of an important part right here because he has faith. He has faith in God so that there was none like him among. And notice it. He trusted in God so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord, that Yahweh commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to the fortified city. Okay. So you get the point that uh, just like all the people who show up in the Great Hall of Faith passage and all of the patriarchs that are mentioned in the Great Hall of Faith passage, they did everything they did by faith. By faith, then they obey. Same with Hezekiah. But Rick Warren is making it sound like Hezekiah's obedience is the uh, currency that uh, he was able to traffic in in order to receive God's blessings and a life well-lived. That's not a good thing. Can you imagine that? How would you like to have God say that about you, that you were successful in everything you do? Are you saying that because God said that about Hezekiah, that if I, I, can, I can set myself up and position myself so that God make it so that everything I do, I'll be successful? Really? I'm certainly not that successful. Uh, you're not that successful. But the Bible tells us that this guy was. Yeah. What made Hezekiah special? God says Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did. The text says he trusted the Lord. He was the greatest king uh, in Israel. There was nobody before him or after him who even come, came close. Why? Because he always did what God wanted him to do. He yeah, no, no, that's not, see, that's, that's not correct. Yeah, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And, um, yeah, it, here, he trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor before him. He held fast to Yahweh. He trusted in him. And because of his trust and holding fast to him, he then did not depart from following God, but kept and guarded God's commandments. You see, what Rick did here is take the caboose yeah, and try to make it the engine of this uh, of this train. You know, the fact that uh, Hezekiah is keeping the commandments, he's doing so because of faith. You see, faith is the engine and the keeping and guarding God's commandments 
is the natural outcome of that faith. So Rick is confusing law and gospel here. Let me back this up just a little bit. Listen again. This king uh, in Israel, there was nobody before him or after him who even came close. Why? Because he always did what God wanted him to do. He knew who he was, he knew his purpose, and he knew the right timing. Uh, No, (laughs) no, he knew his purpose and he knew the right timing. Notice that Rick just like stuck that into the text. I'm going to back this up again. This is called eisegesis, by the way. This eisegesis, ice is the uh, the Greek preposition into, and so Jesus to read. Uh, so so eisegesis is to read into the biblical text things that are not there. So a little bit of a note. Let's just take a look. Hezekiah verse five trusted in Yahweh the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses. And Yahweh was with him. Nothing in there about he knew his purpose, you know, had timing and all this kind of stuff. Listen again. Let's Here we go. Made Hezekiah special. God says Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did, that he was the greatest king uh, in Israel. There was nobody before him or after him who even come, came close. Why? Because he always did what God wanted him to do. He knew who he was, he knew his purpose, and he knew the right timing. He knew who he was, knew his purpose, knew the right timing. None of those things are mentioned in the text that you quoted. Rick just stuck them in there. In fact, it says that he trusted God, held fast to him, kept his commandments, and um, if you want to know what the commandments of God are, see like, you know, Ten Commandments, Things like that. It doesn't say anything about it. He knew his purpose, had his identity sorted out, and knew all about the timing. This is nonsense, but we continue. Now, if you'd like to be successful in everything you do, I highly suggest that you study this man's life. Has a- so if I want to be successful in everything I do. Ah! <laughs> yeah, there's no way to save this sermon. It's It's really bad. Now, Hezekiah lived an amazing life, but eventually, of course, Hezekiah grew older, and he starts having health problems. In fact, Hezekiah came down with a terminal illness. And in Isaiah chapter 38, it tells us the rest of the story, and that's what I want us to focus on uh, first uh, today. God comes to Hezekiah and says, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Your time's up. I'm pulling your number. I'm pulling the plug. I want you to come home to heaven. But interestingly enough, Hezekiah wasn't ready to die. So he gives God a 32-word argument on why God should let him live and serve God longer on earth. Now, that part of the story, as I said, is recorded uh, in Isaiah. In Isaiah 38, verses 1 to 5, it says this. Later, this is much toward the end of his... Now, a little bit of a note here. Rick Warren has now switched. He, I think, started off with the New Living Translation, and now he's reading from the message, which is, you should never be preaching from the message. It's just the mess. And you, you know, lose the last three letters. It's the mess. It, you should never be preaching from this thing. I've, Hezekiah got sick, and he was about to die. And the prophet Isaiah comes and says, Hezekiah, prepare your affairs and your family. This is it. You're going to die. You're not going to get well from this uh, illness. 
The Bible says, Hezekiah turned away from Isaiah and facing the wall, he prayed to God. And here's what he prays. God, please, I beg you, remember how I've lived my life. Remember that I've lived faithfully in your presence, that I've lived out a heart out of a heart that was totally yours. You've seen how I've lived and the good that I have done. And it says, then God said, you know, Hezekiah, I've heard your prayer and I've seen your tears. And here's what I'll do. I'll add 15 years to your life. You know, I really want to see what <clears throat> that says. Isaiah 38, 1. Okay, so in those days, Hezekiah became sick, was at the point of death. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him, said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, O Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have not done what is and, and have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah wept bitterly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he conducted his life before God in faith. Yeah, that's his point. Hmm, okay. That is one of the most amazing stories in the Bible to me. Can you imagine you doing this with God? That you're uh, near death, uh, God's told you you're going to die, you're going to go to heaven, and you ask God to extend your life and ministry because you've done everything he asked you to do? God, I'd like to live on earth longer, and here's my reason. I've served you faithfully. Now, first, God, he says, I want you to look at my life. Yeah, again, the, um, well, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness. A little bit different emphasis. Rick keeps, uh, you know, hammering things and running it into the law rather than properly understanding law and gospel. And God, I want you to notice that I faithfully obeyed you and I did everything that you told me to do. And second, I want you to look at all the good that I've done for other people and look at the impact my life has had for your glory and for the good of others. He's adding to the text again. It's not what Hezekiah said. Well, that's what Hezekiah does, and evidently God agreed with him. He agreed with Hezekiah's assessment of his own life because he says to Hezekiah, when Hezekiah says, Lord, I'd like to serve you on earth just a little while longer, and I'll make it count, God says, you know, Hezekiah, I believe you. (laughs) Please, O Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Yeah, um... (laughs) Uh, and here, here's God's response. I, I just, I am dumbfounded by what Rick Warren is doing here. I, he's just adding to the text, and he's making no proper distinction between law and gospel at all, making it sound like Hezekiah was totally blessed by his works. So uh, the word of Yahweh came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hands of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Yeah, there's some weird dialogue going on here that doesn't appear in the text that Rick Warren has found mysteriously. Maybe it was hovering in the ether right above his Bible. We, we don't know where it came from. I know you will. 
So I'm going to extend your life for 15 more years. Not just the donation of his life, but the duration of his life is going to be increased. Friends, this is one of the most hopeful stories in the Bible. And it makes me want to ask you. Not the way you're telling it. As well as to ask myself uh, three very personal questions. Here's the first question. If God asked you to give him reasons why he should let you live 15 years longer from today, what would you say? (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Okay. Uh, Totally confusing law and gospel here, and I'm about ready to explode. This is no way to teach a text. What what would be your argument? God, you should let me live 15 years longer. Lord, let me live 15 years longer and outlive Rick Warren so that I can warn everybody about his false teaching. Some more. Second question. If God reviewed the last 15 years of your life and he looked to see how well you had served him and how uh, you had served his purposes and how you'd been a good steward of what he gave you, and that was the basis of God deciding on whether he was going to give you... That's all law! <laughs> Galatians 3. <laughs> Holy smokes, this is bad. Ay, ay, ay. Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's hearing with faith. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, now I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear if God reviewed the past 15 years of your life. And I'm going to point out that if God wanted to do an audit like that, he's going to He's gonna have a problem if, if the thing he's looking for is my sin. Let me explain. So let me back this up to where this disappears. And listen again to what Rick Warren is saying. What would you say? What, what would be your argument? God, you should let me live 15 years longer. Second question, if God reviewed the last 15 years of your life and he looked to see how well you had served him and how uh, you had served his purposes and how you'd been a good steward of what he gave you, and that was the basis of God deciding on whether he was going to give you 15 more years, would God have a reason to extend your life? Well, here's the thing. God's extending my life into eternity. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but Christians, like, never die. Now, their bodies might give out, and you have to stick them in the ground, but they go and be with Christ, and when he returns, he's bringing us back with them, and we're going to live eternally in a new earth. Okay? <laughs> I don't know. That seems like a pretty long life to me, eternal life, and... uh <laughs> So, another biblical text, Colossians chapter 2 here. So, uh, note that the question was, if God reviewed the past 15 years of life of your life, would he be, and this is the basis, would he be eager to give you 15 more? He's given me eternal life, Rick. Um, Colossians, <laughs> Colossians chapter 2, 
And we're going to note here, God's going to be at a loss if he wants to do an audit on the last 15 years of my life. And, you know, and here's the reason why. Uh, Colossians 2, I'll start at verse 8 so that we can hear the gospel clearly. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Uh-huh. And uh, you have been filled in him who is the head and the rule of all authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So those of us who have been baptized, what we've had our hearts circumcised by Christ. We were buried with him in his death and raised with him in his resurrection. And so you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with Christ, having, watch this, forgiven us all, every one of them, all our trespasses. And here's how he did it. Ready? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Mm -hmm. This he set aside. And where did he set it aside? He nailed it to the cross. So think of it this way. If God were to do an audit on the last, you know, 15 years of your life, so he's got to open up the book, right? Because that's how we're going to do an audit. We're going to check the book. And so you've got, on the one hand, you've got to decide with all your good works. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have the record of debt that stands against you of every infraction that you've committed by breaking God's commandments and his laws. And that's called the record of debt. Well, here's the thing. Christ has taken the record of debt, ripped it out of your book, and he's canceled the whole thing by nailing it to the cross. I like to always kind of add that. You might as well have him, you know, just with a little bit of a flourish, taking his blood and writing on that record of debt, debt paid in full. So God doesn't remember our sins. The whole record of debt's been bled for, died for. God takes our sins and casts them into the sea of his forgetfulness. And he puts up a no fishing sign. So if God's going to do an audit of your life, would he give you 15 more years? God wanted to do an audit of my life for the last 15 years. All he'd see are my good works because all my sins have been ripped out of the book. They're not there. You see what I'm saying here? Let's continue. I may blow up, but if I do, just call the, you know, call an ambulance or something. All right, what do you say? Mm, No, I I don't think you're serious about using your life to serve others. I don't think you're serious about fulfilling the purpose that I made you for. So God didn't make me for a purpose. I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works, plural. I think I'm going to give you any more time. Here's the third question. Regardless of the time you have left in your life, and you don't know how much that is, neither do I, are you serious about using the rest of your time on earth and your energy and your resources to serve the God who created you and loves you and saves you and helps you? I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't do good works. (laughs) Read the scriptures as to what those good works are. You know, 
Be a good wife, a good husband, a good father, a good mother, a good employer, a good employee. We do our good works and our vocations. So, um, yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. This whole, I've got to find my unique purpose and my identity and learn the timing when to apply that and get busy on. No, no text says that. And so you'll note this whole theology of his, not only is it jumbling and the confusing of the biblical categories of law and gospel, but it's it's like a total denial of the good works that we do that Scripture says are good works. If you're not sure, consult the Ten Commandments. <laughs> anyway, I, I think you get the point. Um, if I go any further, I could potentially blow up. And uh, I, I don't want to do that. That would be embarrassing. So. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're heading off to Potential Church. There's still not a church yet. They're just a church in Potential. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. 
Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. All right, we're back. Our number two, Fighting for the Faith. How long has it been since we've checked in with Troy Grambling? But let's do this right. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via potential church. They, they, I think they used to be Flamingo Road Baptist Church under Dan Sutherland, but Dan Sutherland transitioned them into a purpose-driven church and then chose one of the parking lot volunteers to be the pastor after he left. I'm not making that up. <laughs> And that uh, parking lot volunteer is um, Troy Gramling, and Troy Gramling has taken Potential Church, well, actually, Flamingo Road Baptist Church, away from actually being a church. Now they are just a church in Potentia. And the name of the sermon we'll be listening to is titled, Holy Speech, Holy Speech. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado... Here is Troy Gramling and Holy Speech. Here we go. I want to start, you know, I have a traffic light here. Yes, he does. And let's he has a traffic light on stage there at Potential Church. How much you know? Let's do a little driver's test. You ready? What does red mean? Stop. Stop. Good job. You guys are on top of it. Okay. How many of you have ever kind of... Mm. Now, note, he's not beginning with a biblical text. That's a bad sign. Uh, why is it a bad sign? Because the job of a pastor is to preach the word. We should already at this point have heard which biblical text he is going to be preaching from or on. And nope, we haven't got that. So this is a bad sign, <clears throat> pun intended, even with the stop sign, you know, the stoplight. We're not, not going to ask that question. Okay, what does green mean? Go. Okay, very, very good. And then what's this one mean? Uh, everybody's got a different answer for this one. For some people, this one means speed up, right? Try to make it. Uh, you know, it means it means different things. Well, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever been honked at at a traffic light? Let me see your hands. Been honked at at a traffic light. Now, are you the kind of person that when you get honked at at a traffic light that you're like, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. Let me speed up and get out of your way. How many of you are that that kind of person, right? Now, you guys are either real Christians or liars. 
How many of you, oh, I'm not going to ask this question. I'm just going to tell you what I do. What I do when somebody honks at me at a red light is I think, you think I'm going slow now, right? <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, uh, uh, this is going to be painful for you, sir. I'm sorry. I mean, in Jesus' name, of course. I mean, you know, just, just trying to be used of the Lord to teach him patience. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's that struggle and that wrestle. And so we're going to talk about that this weekend. You know, I was thinking, you can't really stop if your brakes are broken. You can't know whether or not you're going the speed limit if your speedometer doesn't work. And if your headlamps are out, you, you can't turn on your lights when it's dark. So what do you do? You kind of service the car. You have to keep up with what the car is working and what's not working. For, I've, I've got a Chevrolet, so I have OnStar. And every month I get this little report that tells me how much air's in my tires. Like right now, my oil is... At... Now, another note here. Uh, the job of a sermon illustration is to help us better understand a biblical text. So far, this is nothing but uh, biography uh, regarding Troy Gramling, which I'm assuming he thinks this is a sermon illustration, which means, you know, I... I don't know how this helps me better understand the Bible because we haven't heard the Bible yet. And it's saying, hey, you know, you need to change it. And it tells me all this information so that my car can obey the traffic signals. Well, the same thing is true in our lives. There are times when we just need to kind of step back and ask ourselves, is, is my life running right? Is it moving in the right direction? Or is my passion kind of seeping out, you know? Is there bit is my life moving in the right direction? Well, that would require a standard. What's the standard for determining that, Troy? It's in my radiator, and it's coming out in my spirit and coming out in my heart. And we want to partner with you over this next series to do that very thing. And we're going to do it several ways. One is, of course, Wednesday night. There's something about God's worship and his word that brings a sense of awareness of who we are and where we're at. And that's kind of what we're going to do on Wednesday nights. We're going to, it's going to be done with excellence, but it's going to be relaxed. And we're going to worship, and then we're going to look. We're going to do a series. Hmm, they're bringing back midweek worship services. Huh. As they mentioned earlier, we're going to look at 2 Timothy. Now, in just a moment, we're going to look at a passage in 1 Timothy, but I love, and here's why 2 Timothy, I love the relationship between Paul and Timothy. And this is written, 2 Timothy, which we're going to talk about on Wednesday, at a time when Paul's on death row. The first time Paul was imprisoned, he was, it was house arrest, and he got to see a bunch of people, and now he's in a hole in 2 Timothy. And it's dark, and it's wet, and Nero is in control, and he is ripping Christians to shreds. And so there's this fear of whether or not Christianity is going to survive. But there's one dude that Paul did life with that he really believed in, and he was going to be the next. One dude who Paul did life with. Let me back this up just a second. Here we go. And Nero is in control, and he is ripping Christians to shreds. And so there's this fear of whether or not Christianity is going to survive. But there's one dude that Paul did life with that he really believed in, and he was going to be the next Paul, and his name was Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to him. Timothy's at his Paul. What? Timothy was going to be the next Paul. N -n -n Timothy was a pastor, not a an apostle. Yeah, important to make a distinction like that. 
the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy in first, first and Second Timothy, those are part of the body of work known as the pastoral epistles, where the apostles are, you know, getting ready to depart this life. Uh, many of them uh, already had been martyred, you know, and so who who is now going to uh, pick up the task of discipling within the church? And it's going to be pastors. And, yeah, that, that's going to be their primary job. And their job is to bring forth the apostolic teaching and the apostolic preaching. The apostles and the prophets are still teaching us today. And the job of a pastor, then, is to preach the word. I don't know what he's talking about, but okay. Favorite church, was it, which is the church at Ephesus. It's great, you know, great church, hard place to do ministry. And we'll talk about why on Wednesday. And he writes, and you hear, I can, I love the book because of the letter, because when I read it, I, I sense Paul's loneliness. I sense Paul's hope and expectation in that next generation. And so I think it'll be encouraging. And I think God will help us kind of look at our own lives to see if our tires are aired up and our radiator works and our speedometer is all set. So we're going to do that on Wednesday. I hope you'll come be a part of that. Secondly, I'm going to challenge you over the next five weeks to fast. And what does it mean to fast? It means to to, to do without or to step back from. When you read about it in the Bible, it's talking about food. People would fast so that they could hear from God. What I'm encouraging you to do... Um... (laughs) When you read the Torah, um, fasting was was mandated prior to important feast days, especially like the Day of Atonement. And, it, and the purpose of fasting was not so that they could somehow prompt God to begin talking to them. Yeah, that's not the purpose of fasting. Uh, sometime this, after, this evening is to kind of think through what God wants you to step back from. Maybe it's lunch. Three times a week, once a week, every. <laughs> God wants me to step back from lunch. Probably breakfast too, yeah. Other week, every day. Maybe it's lunch and breakfast. Maybe it's YouTube or Netflix or Comcast or Xfinity. I, I don't. Or potential church, yeah. What it is. But we're stepping back, and here's why to reflect and to hear from God. See, I, I don't think that we're... E- Do you really think that pray, uh, fasting is going to make it so that God's going to speak to you directly? <sighs> yeah, see, I, God talks to me every day through the written word of God. Well, people, I just think you're busy, man. You've got a lot to go on in your life. And so if 2019 is going to be different than 2018, we've got to look at our lives and say, I mean, are we ready to run after it th- this year? Are we ready to shift into a different gear? And I think that takes some reflection. I th- In order for 2019 to be different than 2018, I've got to. Yeah, this is all life improvement. This is not Christian sanctification we're hearing about here. It takes some time hearing from God. And if we don't make time for it, it's not going to happen. So if you would, and it just whatever God nudges you to do to make that commitment to say, you know what, rather on Mondays from 7 to 10 or whatever you think, you know what, I'm going to fast from entertainment and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang with God some. And I'm just going to sit, reflect, maybe journal, read his word, pray, ask God to show me anything in my life that is not where it needs to be to kind of give me an on-star report. Now, if you don't, 
yeah, rather than waiting for God to nudge you regarding that, why don't you do something actually practical? Like, are you ready? Opening up the Ten Commandments and examining your life in light of the Ten Commandments. And then consider kind of not just things you do, but, you know, kind of in a bigger, broader spectrum. Things I do, things I don't do, right? Uh, the, the words I speak, the thoughts I think, you know, in thought, word, deed, by, you know, and, and so work it out that way. And true repentance doesn't merely look at the law where you sit there and go, okay, well, here's where I've messed up. Here's, oh man, I'm really not living up to what God has told me to do. I'm not obeying properly. You also have to bring into consideration the gospel, the good news that Christ has bled and died for us. And so all of your meditation then, uh, and meditation in a proper sense, not in the Eastern way of thinking, is grounded in Scripture, objectively uh, examining and reflecting on your life in light of the objective standard of God's law, and and then considering the, the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So that, so that, you know, true repentance then is sorrow for sin and confidence in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But that's not what he's describing. You know, you give up lunch and wait for a nudge. That's not going to do anything. That's not how God operates. Intentionally do it. It'll never happen. So I encourage you, you know, hang out here on Wednesday as we worship in his word. Then you can spend some time thinking about what you're going to fast over the next, it's five weeks as we're going to see in a moment. And then also I'm going to send you a daily devotional. Or I'm not. So it, it, fasting for five weeks, is this like potential church's own personal version of Lent? Send it to you. You can come get it if you want to. All right. Uh, on uh, Instagram, my Instagram, at Troy Grambling. Really simple. But I'm going to post one there every day for you to kind of reflect up on, again, for us to get ourselves ready and prepared. And lastly, is that there are five weeks in this series, and I just encourage you to come and be here for all of them, okay? Now, let's dive in and see what the scripture actually has to say. And we're going to keep our eyes on the traffic lights. Look at what Paul does say to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on how you live. And then he goes on to say, and your teaching, stay true to what's right. But he says, keep a close watch on how you live. And that's what I just spent time talking about. If you and I don't spend a close, uh, if we don't look closely at our lives, we'll get here next year. It'll be 2020. That's going to be cool, right? 2020. seems like aliens should come or something at, at 2020. But it's going to come. And you know what the tendency is for most people? You'll be the same. You'll be a year older. You know? But, but... Okay. In what way should I be different then? But you'll be the same way. You'll be in the same health. Your relationships will be the same. Your finances will be the same. See, now now we're not talking about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Um, so if I am going to say, I want to be different in 2019, or I want to be different in 2020, then the difference cannot be based upon whether or not my finances are better 
unless there's egregious sin going on in how I'm handling my money. Um, and you know, relationships is vague. Um, you know, what are you talking about? Um, you know, whereas the scripture are talking about all the ways in which the Holy Spirit is conforming us now into, you know, the image, the likeness of Christ. And this is all born in us through the means of grace. And I, I don't know what he's talking about because he's the sanctification he's describing sounds more like, are you a successful, pretty, skinny, um, American, you know, middle, upper middle class suburbanite? Spiritual life will be the same. And you'll be talking about what you're going to do in 2020. That's what will happen to most people. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, man, God's got big plans for you. He, 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 he wants you to do incredible things. But in order for you to accomplish... Where does it say in First Timothy that God... Listen, Timothy, God has incredible plans for you, but you got to do something. Where does it say that? Those things, you're going to have to look at your life. You're going to have to reflect because there's some things that are going to... Yeah, that's not what's going on in First Timothy 4. Like, not at all. To be shifted, because if they're not shifted, if you don't shift into a new direction, you're just going to end up in the very same place. And that's where most people end up. Now, let's look at this next passage because... Yeah, let's take a look at 1 Timothy 4. We'll apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context. And we're going to note that this text isn't saying any of the things that Troy Gramling just said. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, there will, that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage, require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ, Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness." For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value that in every way, it, it, that is value in, ev- uh, in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So command and teach these things. Mm-hmm. Notice no, emph- no emphasis here about how God has great things for you, but you're going to have to have a shifting. No, not at all. So you, Pastor Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, uh, set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hand on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and the doctrine in your doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself 
and your hearers. So we'll note then that uh, Troy Gramling, uh, well, he gave us uh, only um, a part of First First uh, Timothy four verse sixteen, and it was out of context. And all the other stuff that he claimed that this passage was about are not. You can't find them in the in the actual context when you go back and look, which is a sure sign you're dealing with false teaching. Because the whole series is based on verse number 12 of chapter 4. He says, Timothy, be an example to all believers in, number one, what you say. Number two, the way you live. Number three, your love, which of course is your relationships. Four, faith. And five, purity. Now, what do all those mean? Well, be here for the next five weeks because we're going to look at each one of those over the next five weeks to discover what kind of life Paul says we need to have in order to succeed when it comes to our dreams and our destiny and our purpose. What? Hang on. I got to back that up. It's just ridiculous. Of chapter four. He says, Timothy, be an example to all believers in number one, what you say. Number two, the way you live. Number three, your love, which of course is your relationships. Four, faith. And five, purity. Now, what do all those mean? Well, be here for the next five weeks because we're going to look at each one of those over the next five weeks to discover what kind of life Paul says we need to have in order to succeed when it comes to our dreams and our destiny and our purpose. Yeah, that's what I thought he said. This... I'm sorry, nothing in the scriptures, including First and Second Timothy, have anything to do with, you know, what you must do in order to succeed regarding dream, destiny, or purpose, or nonsense like that. This is just straight up, we're way off track now. This is not biblical sanctification, and this is not a biblical teaching. And notice, he's trying to make it appear like the sanctification that and the holiness that Timothy is supposed to be preaching and teaching somehow qualifies you for dream, destiny, purpose thingy stuff. That's not biblical at all. 19. The first one, of course, is he says, in what you say. So he's talking about communication. So we're going to look at this weekend at the traffic light of communication. What is it that we say? Because here's the deal. You cannot succeed this year. If your communication is poor, why? Because all your relationships are based on the way your communication. <laughs> so you poor communicators out there, there's no, there, you, there's no way you can succeed this year. Yeah. This is nonsense. Your marriage, your dating, your job, your career, your college. It's all about relationships and relationships are the result of communication. So you have communication that breeds good relationships and good relationships breed what? Success. And so this is uh, this is just absurd. This is foundational if we're going to have a great year, not just talk about it, right? Everybody talks about it every year. That's going to be the best year. You know, the best is yet to come and all those kind of things. Well, in order for that to be true, we have to shift. And one of the areas that has to be shifted, of course, is our communication. Yeah, you got to shift your communication. If you want to succeed this year, it's it's just mandatory. This is what the Lord wants for you, man. You won't be able to succeed otherwise. If we're going to look at the traffic light of communication, what's the first light at the top of the whatever you call this little deal? Right? It's red, okay? And so jot this down. The red light of communication is this. We need to stop 
talking so much and what? What do you think the answer is? And listen, right? You already know. Uh, Yeah, this is life coaching. This is not Christian sanctification. You don't even need a crucified and risen Savior for this. You have to come tonight, you know, but thanks for coming. Appreciate it. I want to remind you of this. We got to stop talking so much and listen, hear what somebody else is saying, which means we're adding value to them or that we, because we do value what they're saying. We want to hear what their words are. We want to hear behind their words. The scripture says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible. And then read this out loud with me. You ready? And keep. See, it's always so hard to get you to read with me. And yet now a little bit of a note. Uh, the book of Proverbs, fantastic book. Um, if you're not in it regularly, you really should consider being in it regularly, like on a daily basis. What the Proverbs are, you know, and when we understand law and gospel correctly, uh, we understand that the law convicts us of our sin. This is, you know, this is the second use of the law. First use of the law, like we said before, was it, it's all about the government's use, you know, to curb evil, if you would. The second use shows us our sin. Third use of the law, it also reveals to us what a good work is. And so you'll note then, as you work your way through the Proverbs, much of the Proverbs, if not all of it, um, this is law, and it's applied law. And it'll convict you of the ways in which you are falling short and not living according to God's wisdom, which is another way of talking about God's law. And it'll also show you what good works are. So the Proverbs are just, you know, an amazing treasure trove of the law of God convicting us of our sin and showing us what good works are. So, uh, you know, too much talk, uh, you know, and uh, and keeping your mouth shut, uh, this is all part of God's wisdom and his law. So this is, I mean, I, I can't quibble with this idea of, of what the Proverbs teach because, well, that's what the Proverbs teach. But... Note then, Troy is not going to say, "Listen, we we all fall short of this, uh, of of this, and what God wills for us, and uh, and we need to trust in Christ then for every one of the ways in which we have trespassed God's holy law and not done His will." And uh, and so, uh, you know, conversely, it's faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins for every way in which we have not done what his word has said. So let me let me give you some of the other uh, pieces of chapter 10. Now, context, context, context in the book of Proverbs is uh, one of these things where uh, it's, it's a little hard to get because so many of the thoughts are very complete in and of themselves. Uh, there's a whole section of the Proverbs where a single sentence or a single verse uh, gives you the entire thought for it. So they are very self-contained. So he's in Proverbs chapter 10, and he was looking at verse 19. And let's take a look at it in a good translation, because I don't think he's using a good uh, translation. So here's what it says, starting at verse 14. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Verse 15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. 
Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. And then here's the verse in question. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Verse 20 kind of goes in, uh, along these lines, actually 20 and 21. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. So, you know, clearly we're talking about sins com- committed by the tongue here or ways in which we are to use our tongue wisely and according to God's law, which means it's going to be in love for others. Remember, all of God's law hangs on two commandments, love of God, love of neighbor. And so, um, you know, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It's okay. It's talking about a particular type of talk here. And uh, and then warning you where there are a lot of words, eh, something's probably wrong there. Mm-hmm. We continue. But that one was no difficulty at all. Right? Because somebody came to mind when you said that, right? He says, let's just do it again because it feels good. You ready? Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. The red light of communication is we need to stop talking so much. Verse uh, Chapter 17, verse 28 says, even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouth shut, they seem intelligent. Now, why is it, if that's true, why is it we run the red light? Why is it so many of us continue to talk and talk and talk and we never really hear what the other person says? I think there are a few reasons. The worst one I put there in your app is arrogance. Again, we're looking at what the wisdom writer says because when Paul told Timothy, hey, if you want to succeed, you got to be careful about what you say. Your communication is important. Yeah, Paul really didn't say that to Timothy in the way you mean it. He had two things in mind. He had the Old Testament, which Proverbs is a part of, And he had what Paul had written because he was hanging out with Paul. Now, in Proverbs 12, 15, it says this. Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. In other words, why do we keep talking? Because we know it. I mean, how many of you know a know-it-all kind of person, right? They know everything about everything. And they really believe they know everything. And the reason they talk is they're arrogant enough to believe they know more than you about everything underneath the sun. They're just trying to help you out at the end of the day. Right? That's called what? Pride. That's called arrogance. It's exactly what the wisdom writer said. One of the reasons we run this red light, and when we do, it hurts our relationships. Now, you don't know that if if you're a red light runner. You think everybody wants to hear what you have to say. Because after all, you know it. You read it. You watched a documentary on Netflix, you know? So, but it's hurting your relationships. And your inability to be relational is keeping you from being able to succeed in your destiny and in your purpose, whether it be with your kids or your college room. Succeed in your destiny or your purpose. Yeah, we are way off track here as far as anything biblical or whether it be with your supervisor or somebody that you're doing ministry with. Sometimes the reason that we run that red light is because, you know, at the end of the day, I just think I know more than you. And I'm just trying to help you. If you just listen, 
you know that I'm right. I think the other reason is because we're insecure. The scripture says in chapter 20, verse 19, again, the wisdom writer, a blabbermouth will reveal your secrets. So stay away from people who can't keep their mouths shut. One of the most... Yeah, this is talking about somebody who's a gossip and a slanderer. Mm -hmm. Powerful words. You go to work on Monday and you say this. Did you hear? Did did you hear? And what are you hoping they'll say? No, no. Right? Because the moment they say no, you feel empowered. You, 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 well, I've got knowledge you don't have. Oh, my gosh. And I'm not going to tell you immediately. I said, well, I'll tell you at lunch. <laughs> right? I'm just going to walk by you every day. Lunch, lunch. Yes. Right? Because why? He's describing the sin of bearing false witness against your neighbor. This is slander and gossip. Because that just makes me feel, oh, I'm powerful. I'm in, I'm in control, right? And I think some of the reasons we just talk and we talk is because we're trying to convince people around us that we are valuable, that we do have some knowledge, that we are important. We went to the mountains for Christmas, and it was snowy. And the whole family went, so we had a, a few vehicles, and we only had one four-wheel drive, though. Now, I drove in snow in Arkansas 20 years ago. And it's been a long time. The roads are icy and filled with snow, and it's snowing and snowing. And Tyler and Amber got there later, and they rented a minivan and then drove. And so we met them at the bottom of the mountain. And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to decide, can this minivan make it? Because we did an Airbnb up to the house we were staying in. It was at the top of the mountain. And I'm like, ah... I don't know. I mean, the worst that can happen is we slide off the cliff and die. But, <laughs> but uh, So we decided to go for it. I mean, we put all the important people in the four-wheel drive, all right? All the ladies in Lion, they got in the four-wheel drive. And, and then I drove, because of my vast experience in Arkansas and snow, I, I drove the minivan. And we're going, you know. And, and, and I told Steph in the four-wheel drive, he said, you drive behind us, so if we start sliding, you can run into us, Okay. I'm always thinking. And, uh, man, we did great. We got all the way up to where the house is, but I wasn't paying attention or I'm just an idiot. I don't know what it was. I passed our driveway. So, and then I'm like, oh my gosh. So I had to stop on the snow and ice, put it in reverse. Reverse was fine. But then when I put it in drive again to get into the driveway, I was stuck. In the middle of the road, the wheels are spinning. And you know, if you've ever slide on ice, you know, you're wanting to go that way. But once you start sliding, you go this way. And for us, that's where the cliff and certain death was. And Stephanie and, you know, the other ladies in the, in the car are screaming, oh, you're going to die. You know, truth is they would have been fine. We all had insurance. So it had been a good thing for them. But, but I think we're okay. I mean, it's snowing, it's icy, nobody's going to be up here. And sure enough, we're not stuck very long at all. We're trying to figure out what to do. And another car pulls up. And the moment this guy gets out of the car, you can tell he's not a mountain man. Okay? He's a city boy just like us. All right? He knows nothing about ice and snow, but he assumes that he does. And he tells me the problem is, like, because what we decided to do is that we were going to push the car over to just the side of the driveway so that the four-wheel drive could get around it and we could get in and out. Now, remember, the, uh, the verse he read is about gossips and slanderers. My question is, how is the story about the guy who helps you in the snow in Arkansas, 
is the guy a slanderer? Did he come up to tell you about the latest news regarding, you know, Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera? I'm really dating myself here, but you get the point. And he says, well, the problem is, is the suitcases in the back of that minivan. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking the suitcases are adding weight, which is helping with the traction so that we can make progress. And he's like, no, no, no. So here's what I was thinking. He needs to just shut up and push, right? I mean, I mean, in Jesus' name, of course, but, but he just he kept talking about that. And, and I think sometimes, don't we all, right? I mean, I, you get out there, and, and I felt very insecure in the midst of the snowstorm, and, you know, I'm not a mountain man, and we're stuck, and I don't want anybody to die, and, and you know, and so we're, we're pushing on that thing, and, and we get it over there. We push it over there and we have to unload. There's only four suitcases, but we have to unload them. So they have their suitcases to put in the four wheel drive. And as he's leaving, he looks over his shoulder and he says, as soon as you get that unloaded, it'll have no problem at all zooming up that driveway. Well, he was wrong because that van sat there for four days until we got ready to leave and the temperature got up to 45 and all the snow melted. And then it was no problem at all, of course. But I think some of the reason that we run these red lights is because we're just insecure. We just got to talk as if we know something. <laughs> what was the point of the story with the guy in the snow and the luggage and stuff? I, I, I don't know how <laughs> this relates to the text. That we really don't know. Why? Because we want to feel valued. We want to feel important. And if you think about it, both of these are what I put last. It's just narcissism. Right? We, we're just focused on ourselves. I mean, even today, how much time have you spent thinking about somebody besides yourself? Right, easy to come to church. How many other folks? It's so easy to think only of ourselves. Proverbs 18 says, pride first, and then what? The crash. But humility, the willingness to listen, is a precursor to honor. Answering before listening is both stupid and rude. And here's, here's what's, why this is so important in relationships. When I don't listen to you, what am I saying? I don't value you. You're not valued. It doesn't mean to just stop talking. I can stop talking and think about how I'm going to respond. Or I can stop talking and hear what you're really saying. I love the quote that I put in the app uh, from Brian H. McGill. He says, one of the most sincere forms of respect is to actually listen to what another has to say. So we may need to shift from talking to actually listening. But then you have the yellow light. It's the one we all kind of don't know what it means. And here's what I put in your outline. It means to yield to your mind. Basically, here's what I'm saying. Think before you speak. How many of you have ever thought after you spoke and got yourself into trouble? Right? So if we're going to be successful in 2019, Paul says... So this is just turned into a folk wisdom behavior modification sermon. But this isn't about actual holiness and sanctification and bearing the fruit of the spirit. This not at all. Hey, your communication is important. So we got to stop talking so much and got to hear what people are actually seeing. Then we have to yield to our mind, not to our emotions, not to our frustrations. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the godly thinks carefully. What are those next two words before speaking? The mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. So how do we do that? How do we slow down? What is it that we ought to actually yield to as opposed to our anger or our frustration? Well, the first thing I put there is that we need to yield to the right timing. 
When it comes to... <laughs> Got to yield to the right timing. Right. Maybe I can get an app from my Apple Watch, you know? Communication. I need to yield to, is this the right time to have this conversation? To say what I'm about to say. The scripture says in Proverbs 25, 11, timely advice is lovely, like golden apples in a silver basket. Now, I learned this from my kids, and it helped me incredibly in my marriage. What I learned from my kids is that when my kids were little, you know, elementary age school, and we needed to talk to them about something that was important. You know, like we always talked to them about um, our greatest gift offering is one of those things that we'd always talk and how it affected Christmas and all that. And, and anything else, some, someone in the family sick or that kind of thing. Well, when they were little in elementary age, it might take some time to get their attention, but it was we could get their attention on our timetable and have an engaging conversation with them. Right? Now, what I discovered is when they became teenagers, they would sit and be quiet, but not hear anything I'm saying, not engage with what I'm saying. I discovered that it was much more successful when the time was right. Now, for them, that often meant, you know, on the weekend when they came home late at night, like, you know, 11, 30, 12, whatever time. That's not my best time to have in-depth conversations, but it was theirs. And I realized that when I would talk about whatever at that on their time when they wanted to talk about it. Man, the, the relationship had greater intimacy. Why? Because the conversation was engaged more effectively. And at the end of the day, what I was trying to accomplish was growth in our relationship, growth in their life. I wanted them to succeed. And so whatever it is that we were talking about, all I'm saying is timing is important. And, I, and then I realized with Steph, see, with Steph, I was always kind of the person, if there was something we needed to work through, it's like, we need to work through it right now. I mean, it's in the way right now. We need to deal with it right now. She's like, Tree, you just got to give me time to process it. And I, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know, come on. <laughs> um, that never went over very well, but let's, let's deal with it. When I realized there's a right time. And it's more important to know that timing than it is to, to get it out of the way. And that helped so much in those types of conversations. You know, when you see a yellow light, let me ask you this. How many of you speed up to get through it? Because what's when you know you have the favor of God if you hit five green lights in a row. Right? I mean, does that not feel so good? You know, you're driving late at night. through. Oh, it's just such an awesome feeling. But you see a yellow light and what do you do? Man, I, I just I just need to get through it. Once I get through it, I'll slow down. But I just need to get through it. I don't want to sit here. It's frustrating. And don't we do the same thing when it comes to our words? I'm just frustrated. I just need to get through this. And then I'll slow down. Right? And then as a result, it gives opportunity to dis disaster. Just like a head-on collusion of some type. And so it is important for us to yield to the right time. Not to our emotions, but to our mind. The second thing is, is to yield to the right tone. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 24, kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. In other words, you can be angry without yelling. Stephanie and I made a commitment when our kids were little that we were not going to discipline them when we were angry because the goal was for them to be discipled, mentored, to grow, not for us to feel better. 
And I'll never forget, we, were, we had a minivan. Steph and I were in the front. Bailey was so little. She couldn't really say words, but she could make a lot of noise. And, and she's in her car seat. And next to them is Carson and Tyler. And they're doing what, you know, little kids do. You touched me. No, I didn't. You know, you're breathing on me. Stop looking at me. And, and I'm sitting up here, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just frustrated. You know, come on, guys. Give me a break. And, and, and so eventually I just yell. Louder than I've ever yelled. I don't remember what I said. I just yelled. I just yelled. And I turned around. And my only girl, my little girl, Bailey. You, you know how babies can cry with their face before their lungs? You know what I mean? And they're not saying anything yet, but you know what's coming. Yeah. And I look back and I, and I see, you know, of course it got to her lungs. But, and I remember it because I remember the power of the tone. It wasn't what I said. I didn't say anything ugly. I didn't call them names. But I said it with a tone that that frightened her. And so it's important. And the reason I did is I yielded to my frustration. Not my mind. I didn't stop and think about. It wasn't that they didn't need to be disciplined. It wasn't that what I said was wrong. It was the tone in which I said it. And if I would have continued to do that, I wouldn't have a successful relationship. And if I didn't have a successful relationship, it would impact all aspects of my life. So if we want to be different in 2019, we've got to yield with the right, the right tone, the right timing, and then lastly, the right talk. And when I say that, simply what I mean is the right words. Proverbs 18 says, wise words satisfy like a good meal. The right words bring satisfaction. The tongue can bring death or life, and those who love to talk will reap the consequences. When I, when I say the right words, here's, here's what I mean. Sometimes we can be like, you never. Never? Never? And all of a sudden, what does the conversation come about? Because if I look at you and I say, you know what, you never, how do you respond? Well, I did it, I did it last night. And now what are we fighting about? The word Never. That wasn't the original. The conflict didn't start over never. The conflict started over some kind of action. But rather than yield to my mind, I yielded to my frustrations and I made a a comment. I used a word that now is a total distraction from us actually being able to, to grow through this conflict. Yeah, and remember, this is all about you being better in 2019 so you can achieve your destiny or purpose. Rather than... Be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. Very different thing altogether. So I say, you, you never, every time, I, I, I didn't, you know, yesterday. I didn't two years ago. And so we, we start having the wrong conversations. See, the great thing about conflict is this. It's an opportunity to be more intimate with whoever you're having conflict with. Conflict is the result of discovering something about someone that you did not know. Which is what? It's deeper intimacy. And if it's handled correctly, you're able, now you're more. My question right now is what qualifies him to give advice along these lines? The job of a pastor is to preach the word. He should be an excellent exegete. Um, you know, this relational advice that he's giving, um, I don't know if I'd be qualified to give such advice. You're more intimate. That friction, that depth. And so every time there's this great opportunity, if we yield to our mind, 
if we think before we speak, as opposed to saying all these words, and then we've got another thing to deal with. Now we're not dealing with what the action was of the person that you work with, you're married to, your kids, your boss, your roommate. We're dealing with what? All the things that were said. And it totally distracts us from being able to be successful. And then, of course, you know, there's the... Yeah, I know plenty of sinners. I mean, rank sinners who are awful in their speech in multiple ways who are quite successful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pulling of names, ripping on one another. I mean, those things have incredible, incredible impact. So if we're going to be successful in 2019, we got to stop talking so much and we got to hear what one another is saying. We got to yield to think about what we're saying before we say it. And then what's the green light mean? What's it mean? Go, man. Put that foot on the accelerator. It's the good light. It's the happy light. And it's the idea to go and encourage others with our words. Look what the scripture says. Okay, now note, the sermon is all law. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, if you wanna, if you wanna. So you gotta, you gotta do these things with your speech if you wanna achieve and be successful in your purpose and destiny. You gotta, you gotta, you got all law. And the fact that this is all law, you're on the receiving end of this, you are being convicted. Oh, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Oh, you got me, Pastor. Right? Yeah, that's what the law does. But the solution is just fix it. Not repent, be forgiven, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. No, it's so it's law is the is the diagnosis, the thing that's diagnosing the problem as it should. But the solution is just fix that and stop doing the thing that you know you shouldn't be doing. Mm -mm. Christianity is about repentance, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, lamenting and having sorrow for the ways in which you have fallen short of God's holy law. Mm -hmm. Being forgiven, having confidence that Christ has bled and died for those sins, those shortcomings, and then bearing fruit in love towards neighbor, uh huh, and in love towards God. But this, that's not what we're hearing here. Verse 12, 25. Worry weighs a person down, but an encouraging word does what? Cheers a person up. And who's got that power? You do. This is what's so exciting about this. This doesn't something that's practiced tomorrow. This is practiced today. You realize there are folks, some of you are going to go over here to Publix or Walmart or Target right after this store and right after this service. And you realize there are people in that store that need to be encouraged. And you have the power to do it. Your words have the power to do it. You're probably sitting next to somebody that could use a little encouragement. And you know what? You have the power to do that. When Stephanie encourages me, it impacts me all day long. When she says something with her mouth, with her words, that's encouraging. When one of my kids say something with their words, it it, it matters. That's how I know you have that power. We have that power in one another's lives. And that's why I get excited about this, because I want us to go and encourage tomorrow at work, you're going to walk in. And I promise you, everybody you're going to come into contact with needs encouragement. And you can give it to them. Your words have that kind of fuel, that kind of power 
And what does that do? It brings incredible relationships, which what leads to success. Because who do you want to hang out? So the reason I'm going to speak kindly to you and use words properly is so that I can succeed. Because having a good relationship is important for my success. Notice then that the motivation for speaking properly is your success. It's still all about you, not about love for neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So at the, at the heart of this, this is still teaching self-centered selfishness. This is not con- being conformed into the image of Christ at all. With tomorrow at work, you want to hang out at the per- with the person who's just always grumpy. How's your How's your weekend? Crappy. <sighs> Man, I had a great weekend. Well, you're not married to the person I'm married to. You got a creepy weekend too. Right? I mean, is that really who you want to have lunch with? No. Who do, you, who do you want to hang with? You want to hang with the person that's encouraging. The person that uses their words to build you up. You'll look for them at, around lunch. You'll look for them to do deals with. You'll look for them to be your roommate. So we have to go and encourage. Now, what kind of words do we need to use? Let me give you this real quickly. First of all, we need to use honest words. Look what it says in Colossians. This is a letter that Paul wrote. Colossians chapter 4 says... Let every word you speak be drenched with grace and tempered with truth and clarity. Drenched with grace. Eh, This is a weird translation, but let's just go with it for a second. That would be, that would require it to be informed by the cross, by what Christ has done for us in bleeding and dying for our sins. You see, that grace and mercy that comes from Christ to us, undeserved. You see, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. That then, that love, that forgiveness, that grace, that mercy that we have received, then, uh, like a fountain, flows down to others through us. Yeah, that's if it's going to be drenched with grace, tempered with truth and clarity, that's going to be something well-grounded in the cross of Christ. So when I say honest words, that's what I mean. True words, clear words, not disguised words. I say one thing, but I'm really meaning another thing, and then I get frustrated when you don't know what I mean. Honest words keep your words fueled with the power to be able to encourage. When we, when we fib, and isn't it, isn't it easy to lie? We learned that when we were kids. Like, did you do that? No, you did that because you were sinful. Yeah, we sin because we are sinners. Uh, no. No. Who did it? Well, I don't know. Somebody broke in in the middle of the night. You know? The monster did. It's, it's just so easy to do. And what we need to realize is that when we're not honest, our words lose fuel. It's like it gets sucked out of it. it. For example, let's say, you know, your supervisor and you come in, you just finished a project and, you know, the, 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 the people that are all in charge said, good job, it was great. But this side of the congregation, let's say, you guys are the lazy people, okay? You, you didn't do a whole lot, complained a lot. You guys made it happen. You worked hard, you got this thing done. So you come in. <laughs> this is just pretend, all right? Um, you come in. You say, hey, guys, I got word last night from headquarters. They really loved what we did. Great job. Appreciate it. 
And then you come over to this group that worked really hard, who knows that group didn't work hard at all and just heard what you said. And you say, hey, guys, heard from headquarters. They said, great job. Appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Hey, hey, way to go. Does that mean anything? It doesn't, does it? Because why? You heard me say it to those that you know it's not true about. So you can no longer trust it. It's as if your words get the fuel just pulled out of them. And they no longer have power. It's like hitting the accelerator. You ever flooded the car out? You hit the accelerator and it doesn't go anywhere? It happens in families all the time. You have an affair, right? You commit adultery on your spouse. And you guys say you're going to work it out and work through it. And then one day you're like, hey, I'm going to run up to the store. I, I got to get me some, I get me some of that ethos potential church coffee. All right. And, and, and your spouse is like, where are you going? I'm going to the store. I'm going to get some of that coffee. Well, really? Where are you going? I'm going to get some, no, no, you're not going anywhere unless you put that GPS thing on, on top of you. Remember I bought you for Christmas? You're like, well, why? It's because now your words, they don't have any power. Why? Because they weren't honest words. You said things in the past. Now you can rebuild that and that's awesome and that's great and that's wonder. But it's important to realize that if I want to use encouraging words, it's important that my words are honest words. You see? You want to encourage your kids? Sometimes people, parents get frustrated because they're like, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to talk to my kids, and I'm going to... But your kids know what you said to the neighbor that wasn't true. They know what you said to your teacher, their teacher that wasn't true. They, they know what you said to who... And so now, when you're speaking into their lives, those words aren't as powerful as if they knew that you spoke the truth always. Then they can believe and hang on to those words. Yeah, that's the thing about sinners. They sin. Mm -hmm. So this is why repentance, forgiveness of sins, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is important. And recognize that all of us being sinners, uh there's different ways in which we sin against God and sin against others. So that being the case, the, the person he's describing you know, you just, so that's why it's important that you always speak the truth. Right. But what about the fellow who hasn't or the gal who hasn't? What hope do you have for them except for just start always speaking the truth now? They haven't. They've lied just like the devil, and they need to be forgiven. They need to hear about Jesus. So they need to be honest words. They need to be honorable words. Proverbs 15 says, a tender answer turns away rage, but a prickly reply spikes anger. The words of the wise extend knowledge, but foolish people utter nonsense. Ephesians 5, 4 says, don't swear or spurt nonsense. Don't make harsh jokes or clown around. Make proper use of your words and offer them thankfully in praise. And again, what is he saying? Our words need to be honorable. Our words don't need to be ugly. Our words don't need to be profane. Not if we want to succeed in 2019, not just talk about it. Yeah, just because it's all about succeeding in 2019, you know, right. Come on. We really want to shift our lives towards success, then they need to be honorable. Ugly words, right? You ever, somebody says an ugly word and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, it just slipped out. It's not who I am. Yeah, actually, that is who you are. You are, a, you are a sinner. This is why ugly words come out of you. This is why Christ had to bleed and die for you. Hateful words, racist words, 
bigoted words, whatever they are. Like, ah, oh, man, I don't know where that came from. It's just, you know, like false teaching. Those are words too. Really bad words. It's just not who I am. Well, look what the scripture says. Okay. It's not in your app, but they're going to put it up here on the board. Let's in a moment. Here we go. Let's read this out loud. You ready? Together. Here we go. But the words. Okay. One more time. But the words. So, so what does that mean? It means that whatever it is that I said didn't come from out here. It came from where? Right here. It came from in here. In other words, it is who I am. Now, don't let... They say, oh, Troy, that sounds so judgmental. No, 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 listen. Don't let that... Don't let... Yeah, it is, but it's a right judgment. Uh-huh, what you say comes out of your heart, and it's from the heart flows sin. So notice here, he's trying to get at the root of the matter. But do so in a way, oh, no, 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 I'm not being judgmental. God's law is judging them. Troy, feel that way. It's actually an opportunity. It's like when the light comes on in your car and says engine trouble. What is that trying to do? It's trying to warn you so that you don't end up on the side of the road somewhere broken down. Well, when some word comes out of your mouth, that is a revelation that something's gotten into your heart. You might not know how. You might not have even known it was there. Something's gotten into my heart. Yeah, I was born dead in trespasses and sins. I still have a sinful nature. So do you. Whether it came from something you read or you watched or where you work or whatever it is, the culture you live in, whatever it is, all of a sudden... So notice he's describing sin almost like an external virus and and then you catch it. (laughs) No. Now it's there. And here's what you know, according to scripture, it will keep you from succeeding. Some of us look back on our lives and say, why is it I can never get ahead? It's because communication might be one of the reasons. And because we've allowed some things into our lives and into our heart, it becomes destructive. So it's when that comes out, rather than just dismissing it and saying, well, I don't know what happened. You know, that's just not who I am. No, no, no. I'm going to step back and I'm going to reflect and I'm going to read and I'm going to fast so that I can eradicate that from my life so that I can be everything that God's created me to be. See, my degree is a BSc. It's a Bachelor of Science in Education in Economics and in Social Science. Stephanie's got a degree in elementary education. Can I tell you something about elementary teachers? If you have elementary children, they know more about you than you'd wish they knew about you. Stephanie would come home and tell me stuff, man, if I was a good blackmailer, I'd be a wealthy man right now. Because if you mispronounce a word in your home, guess what? Your kid's teacher know that. If you use certain language in your home, guess what? Your kid's teacher knows that. Right? You ever been around children sometimes? And when they say it, it sounds a lot worse than when you said it, didn't it? And sometimes it's so bad where the parent will even say this, where did you hear that? And then you look, right, you're embarrassed. So you look at the person standing there and you're like, I don't know where they heard it. You know, my sister's kid was over the other day and she doesn't love her kids near as much as I do. I, I, no, no, don't dismiss that. It's an it's a engine light. It's a reminder that something that's got into your home. And however it's gotten in there, it needs to be eradicated. Why? Because it's going to impact your relationship with that child, with your best friend, with your coworkers. Because we cannot succeed without healthy communication. So you got honest words, you got honorable words, and then you have wise words. 
tried to think of a word that started with an H that meant wise and I couldn't do it. So Proverbs chapter 10 says, the mouth of the godly person gives wise advice, but the tongue that deceives will be cut out or cut off. In other words, it'll no longer be heard. The lips of the godly speak helpful words, but the mouth of the wicked speak perverse words. In other words, our words ought to, to help. There ought to be depth to our words. Knowledge to our words. Why? Because I'm growing as a person. I'm shifting in my life. I'm, I'm reading. I'm growing. I'm maturing. I'm fasting. I'm praying. I'm worshiping. I'm becoming a deeper person. And so I'm able to encourage you. Why? Because my words have some weight. It may mean that, that we need to make a shift in our relationship. In other words, I don't want to spend... I don't want the closest people to be around me to be people who always agree with me, even if what I'm, the words I'm saying are not true. And here's what I mean. If my tire's low, I want to have somebody around me to say, hey, your tire's low. You're, 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 you're losing some passion. You got some bitterness in your radiator. Your speedometer's, speedometer's not working. <laughs> bitterness in your radiator. Uh, yeah, dude, you, you're, you're a sinner. Yeah, the reason you sin is because you're a sinner. Yeah, go back and listen to uh, Phil Johnson's lecture on the Pelagian heresy. And you, you've ran a few red lights. You're not hearing what we're saying. And so there may need to be a shift in our relationship so that we can get depth in our lives and maturity in our lives. Because if you got wise words, and when you're going through hurt and pain, great opportunity. If you have wise words, you know what? people will seek you out, which will position you for opportunities in order to succeed, to make a difference, to be encouraging. So we got to stop and listen, got to yield and I'll think before we talk and then we go, man, go and be an encouragement to somebody intentionally. And then just a little note here, because I figure that a lot of you guys who are Christ followers are probably going to talk to God in 2019. And the same dude who wrote Proverbs wrote Ecclesiastes, the wisdom writer. The Bible says the wisest man who's ever lived. And I just want to read this. So as you talk to God in 2019, we might think about this. It says, you enter the temple, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Don't be a fool who doesn't even realize it is sinful to make rash promises to God for he is in heaven and you are here on earth. So let your words be few. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean when, when you come to the church, you're supposed to be, you know, just quiet, you know, can't say anything. No, no. You got to understand the idea here. The idea here, he says what? God's in heaven and you're on earth. What is he saying? God is in control and you're not. God's all powerful and you're not. God's sovereign and you're not. God's everywhere and you're not. What is he saying? He's saying that when we come together, the Bible says, whether two or more gathered, he is there in the presence. So when we come to his house, we are coming into his presence so that he can impart to us what? He can impart to us transformation. He can impart to us success. He can impart to us reconciliation. Impart to us success. Where in scripture does it say that God's going to impart success to us? There is the opportunity and the capacity for God to do incredible things in our gathering. And so what he's saying is don't come in talking like you know everything. Don't come in acting as if you're the man or you're the woman or whatever it is. He's, no, 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 no. We are to come in with a sense of reverence. 
sense of expectation. We are in the presence of God, all-powerful God. And if I could push back on some of us, maybe just a little bit. I know it's early. I don't want to take you off at the first of the year, but I think the idea here is also is that when you come to his house is to be on time. And here's the reason why, okay? I want you to hear this. Is that when you come, whenever it is that you want to show up, this may not be what any of us intentionally say, but what are we saying? Hey, you know what? I'm going to go down to the house on my time schedule. And I'm going to expect God to do whatever, what I expect God to do when I get there. Right? And, and, and what is that? It's, the, it, it's that same idea of, of pride. No, no. It's like, uh-uh. I'm coming on his time schedule. I'm coming to hear from him. I need to experience his healing, his love, his peace, his joy, his purpose. It's not, it's not about me. I'm on earth. He's in heaven. And I really believe that. Yeah, the weird thing is, is this whole sermon is about you. Sometimes we don't experience from God what he desires to give us. Why? Because we come in talking. I don't mean talking to one another. I mean, we come in thinking we're the man. Hey, I'm here now. Right, God? Aren't you happy? I made it. And I think the wisdom writer here is saying, God's in heaven. You're on earth, man. You're talking too much. You got your pride on. You're doing it your way instead of surrendering and submitting your life. Surrendering and submitting. A white flag and then Islam. Yeah, Islam, submit. Yeah, this is, again, this is all law, not law and gospel. He goes on and says, just as being too busy gives you nightmares, so being a fool makes you a blabbermouth. So when you talk to God and you vow or you make a commitment to him to do something, don't delay in doing it, for God has no pleasure in fools. In other words, it's foolish to commit or to say, God, I'm going to do something and not do it. Keep your promises to him. It is far better, verse 5 says, not to say you'll do something than to say you will and then not do it. Now, here's the reason I read that. Some of us may have some unfinished business in 2018. Some of us may have some promises that we made to God and we forgot about them. We got busy and we have excuses and we have reasons but we never got around to it. You know, we told God that we were going to get involved in that ministry. We told God we were going to ask that person for forgiveness. We, we, we committed to God that, that if he'd help us here, man, we were going to have uh, more commitment to, to him in our family, or we were going to be more generous with our finances. I, I don't know what it was, but I just want to bring that up because of what we're going to read here in just a moment. Because look at what he says about this in verse six. He says, in that case, if you've made commitments and not kept them, Your mouth is making you sin. And he says, don't try to defend yourself by telling the messenger from God. All right, just so you know, there is two minutes, 30 seconds left of the sermon. He's just mentioned sin. The whole sermon has been law, 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 law. And some of it biblical, some of it really tortured. And do you think in two minutes and 30 seconds he can land the plane and bring them to penitent faith in Christ who will forgive them for all of the ways in which they've sinned with their tongues as he's sort of kind of described? Just just asking. It was all a mistake to make that vow. That would make God very angry. 
and he might, and here's the part I want you to hear. He might destroy your prosperity. In other words, there are. Uh, yeah, two minutes, 20 seconds left. I don't think we're going to hear the gospel today. And he, boy, is he really twisting up Ecclesiastes 5. Let's, okay, so he's uh, supposedly preaching from the, the, the living Bible uh, of Ecclesiastes 5, and boy, is this just a mess. Verses 1 to 7 are the verses, let's apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, context, 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 and in this case, we're going to have to apply a second um, second rule, and that is work from one good translation. ESV is a fine translation. But uh, if you were to look at the notes for the sermon, he's like quoting from the voice, from the living, from the new century. I mean, he's doing this Rick Warren style, you know, cherry picking different translations to work with what he's trying to say. And so he just said that if you don't keep your vows, you know, your vows from 2018, God's going to destroy your prosperity. I <laughs> Ecclesiastes 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to, listen, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. So be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> my question is, at what point in 2018 was Troy Grambling encouraging people to make promises for God? You know, and, and ah, this is just such a mess. And like I said, two minutes, 20 seconds left. We're, we're not going to hear the gospel. I just don't think it's possible for it to show up. There are some of us who may not succeed in 2019 simply because we never went back and took care of business in 2018. Ugh. And God says, no, no, you're not doing that to me. Remember, I'm in heaven. You're on earth. I'm all powerful and you're not. And so you need, you need to deal with that. You need to wrestle with me. You need to allow God to, to do in our hearts whatever he needs to do about whatever commitment we made or whatever it is that we promised that we didn't follow through on. He says, dreaming instead of doing is foolishness and there is ruin in a flood of empty words. Fear God instead. And that, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about is is that fear of him, that reverence, not a fear of like, oh my gosh, it's God. No, no. It's like, man, I am in the presence of God. We're Hugh sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the audience to get them to make decisions of one kind or another. Apparently, uh, the decision is ultimately for you to choose to be successful in 2019. And, uh, and, uh, and step number one is uh, you need to change up how you 
use your words and things and stuff, according to the outline that uh, Trey Gramling gave us in the so-called sermon. Presence of God, he does miraculous things in his presence. He can really transform our lives. We're not just talking. We're not just at a motivational seminar. We're not just hoping that... Yeah, pretty much you are. Uh, we're not going to hear the gospel. We got one minute, 25 seconds. I'm pretty sure Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins is not going to be brought to bear here. Nothing good's going to happen in 2019. No, we are believing that the all-powerful God has positioned us so that we can succeed in incredible ways in 2019. No matter... God has positioned us so that we can succeed. No, no, no repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no Christ and him crucified. Yeah, this is a mess. The economy does. No matter who gets elected to certain offices, no matter what happens in the weather. Because at the end of the day, he is in charge. Right, yeah. And so I just encourage you. I, I don't know, you know, whether it's, I got to stop. I really hear, you know, because I value people and I want to hear what they got to say. Or if it's, man, I, I got to, I got to think, I got to yield to my mind, not my emotions, not my anger, not my frustration. Or, you know, I just got to be, I got to hit the accelerator more. I got to be more intentional about using my words to encourage the people around me. Or maybe just, there's some things in 2018 in my relationship with God that I need to take care of. Would you bow your head? Done. Yeah, I think you get the point. That just an utter train wreck. All law, zero gospel, no gospel whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And uh, and some strange theology and Bible twisting along the way. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>